Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 8. In the last episode, I covered the wall around Jericho, which naturally led to the distance that the Israelites marched for seven straight days. I also covered what's known about that battle. After that, I reported on what's known about the city of Ai. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm beginning with the next place in the text, Bethel. I do have to apologize, I am fighting a bit of a cold this week. So bear with me while I work through this episode. And with that, let's get started. In Joshua chapter 8, just before the Israelites attack Ai for the second time, we're told that part of their army hid out between Ai and Bethel. Recall that in the last episode, I mentioned that if you go with the location that some have proposed as Ai, that Bethel was only about a mile and a half, about two kilometers away. The other, more recent proposed location for Ai isn't much further, the point being that the army was close to both cities. Bethel is sometimes rendered as Beit El, which is how it was recorded in Hebrew. The name Bethel is actually the Latin version of the name. In Hebrew, well, in both really, it translates as the house of God. Of course, I'll cover why that is in a minute or two. It's first mentioned in Genesis 12 as being near where Abraham pitched his tent in Canaan. That specific passage reads, At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there, he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And take note of this location. This means that the Israelites lay in wait to invade the city of Ai on the same ground where Abraham encamped. But there's something more, and it ties back to last week's episode. Recall that the first proposed location for Ai has a portion of researchers who think that it was destroyed around the mid-third millennium BC and lay in ruins until well after the Israelites arrived back in Canaan, after their exodus from Egypt. It's believed that Abraham lived sometime around 2000 BC, so if Ai was destroyed around 2500 BC, then it would have been in ruins for hundreds of years when Abraham encamped between it and Bethel, and probably wouldn't have been mentioned in the text of Genesis. Does this prove that Ai was there? No, but it does point in that direction. Of course, the proponents of the Ai destruction theory do take this into account and posit, perhaps rationalize, that the Abraham narrative was written later, too. Back in Genesis, just after Abraham camps between the two cities, he builds an altar there. In Joshua, when the Israelites show back up, there's no mention of the altar, and certainly nothing that claimed it stands there to this day. If the passage had been written later, this would have likely been included, indicating the strength and staying power of all things related to Abraham. But it wasn't included. On the surface, this too doesn't add anything, 
at least not directly, to the historicity of the narrative, but it does point in the general direction. Moving along and back to Bethel. The next substantial mention in the text is later in Genesis. It was here that Jacob dreamt of angels and God. The morning after his dream, he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. So there are two things of note in here. The first is something new, the previous name for Bethel, Luz, and the second is that the footnote in both the New Revised Standard and the NIV tell us that Bethel can be translated as the house of God. I'm going to pause here just for a second to chase down this place known as Luz. First, note that the city of Luz may actually be two different places found in the Old Testament. The first, naturally, is the original name for Bethel. I'll get to the second in a minute. The Luz of Genesis was in Canaan and believed to have been home to a king. This probably isn't as impressive as it first sounds. As recall, there were many kings in this small area, though it does indicate that it was of some importance. We just don't know how great that importance was. There's a larger matter of debate, and that's if Luz and Bethel were the exact same place. In Genesis, when Jacob had his dream, it seems he's out in the middle of nowhere, maybe in the territory around Luz. And back with Abraham, Bethel seems to be a city worthy of serving as a landmark. And the assumption in that case is that Bethel was called Luz at the time of Abraham. It was just later renamed Bethel, and the name stuck. The flip side of the argument is that there were really two different places, and just close to each other. And as time passed, the whole area adopted the name Bethel, at least to Hebrew speakers which, after the territory was conquered, was the only language that mattered, especially to those recording the history in the Old Testament. Other than that possible confusion about if they were exactly the same place, that's it for the first laws. The second place with the name is found in the book of Judges, in the first chapter. And the entire episode is well recorded in the text so I'll let it speak for itself, with the usual clarifying and condensing paraphrasing. The house of Joseph, meaning both the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, went up against Bethel. They sent spies to Bethel, the city formerly named Luz. Thank the writer, believed to be the prophet Samuel, for the clarification. When the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. He took them up on their offer. The Israelite army then attacked the city, but let the man who had aided them, along with his family, go free. He would travel to the land of the Hittites and build a city there, naming it Luz, and that name remains to this day, meaning when Samuel wrote the book of Judges. This is the Luz mentioned in Joshua 16, though it wouldn't be named this until later and would tend to indicate that at least this portion of the book of Joshua was written later 
or was at least edited at a later point. Also, this Luz is believed to be the same as either Lueza or Wazani, both about four miles, six and a half kilometers, northwest of Banias, in the Golan Heights, at the foot of Mount Hermon, in the modern country of Israel, though a stone's throw from the borders with Lebanon and Syria. And that's it for Luz, and gets me back to Bethel. Later in Genesis, in chapter 35, God tells Jacob to take his family to Luz, where we're again told it would later be called Bethel. He once again builds an altar there. Then, while still at Bethel, God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. After this, Jacob set up a pillar of stone at the place, poured a drink offering on the pillar, and poured oil on it. After these offerings was when Jacob, now Israel, officially changed the name of the place to Bethel. After the Israelites settled in Canaan, Bethel would be located on the border between the territory allocated to the tribes of Benjamin and Ephraim. Though it appears that later in the Old Testament, the town would come wholly under the control of Ephraim. This town, probably better described as a village owing to its small size, would exist well past the birth of Christ. Both the historian Eusebius of Caesarea and the Roman historian Jerome, both of them in the 4th century AD, described the place as being a small village about 11 miles, 18 kilometers north of Jerusalem. Actually, they recorded it as being 12 Roman miles, with about 5,000 feet to the Roman mile, keeping in mind that the actual measurement was very inconsistent. Their descriptions were even more exact, recording that it was on the right, meaning to the east, on the road leading to Neapolis. As for the actual location, most modern researchers think it's located at the modern West Bank village of Baiton, with a smaller group claiming it's at Elbira. The 19th century archaeologist Edward Robinson, who I mentioned in the last episode, was among the Baiton advocates. His identification relied on textual analysis, with the location fitting the description found in numerous ancient texts. Also, Robinson thought that the similarities in the names pointed towards this location. David Livingston, and not the Dr. Livingston of African exploration fame, but instead a 20th century American archaeologist, argues the other side, claiming that there hasn't been any positive identification, such as would be seen through uncovered artifacts such as inscriptions and also reminds us that you have to be careful when relying on ancient distances, like the 12 Roman miles recorded by Jerome in Eusebius. He posits that this Baiton might be the same as a different biblical city, and that's Oprah, a Benjaminite city mentioned in Joshua 18, which I'll get to shortly. As for Bethel, it would continue to hold religious significance throughout the Old Testament, but even more especially so in the first part, after the Israelites settled in Canaan. It was at Bethel, and as found in Judges chapter 20, that we're told the Ark of the Covenant was kept, when Phinehas, the high priest, son of Eleazar, 
and grandson of Aaron would minister before the ark. This is thought to indicate that, at least at that time, Bethel was the center of the Jewish religion. Of course, Bethel wouldn't remain the religious center, as it shifted to Jerusalem with David, then was more permanently established there when Solomon had the great temple built in that city. But before that shift, at some point, the ark was moved to Shiloh, as seen in 1 Samuel 4. After Saul was anointed by Samuel as king, he traveled to near Bethel, where he was met by four prophets, said to be going up to God at Bethel. At this same point in the text, and somewhere near Bethel, there was a Philistine garrison stationed, indicating that at least part of the territory was controlled by the Philistines. Throughout the prophecy, times, and writings of Samuel, Bethel continued to make appearances, usually in reference to its continued religious significance. As time passed, and as I just spoke about, the religious center shifted away, to the point that when the kingdom split after King Solomon's death, the nature of the town did a 180. King Jeroboam, the first king of northern Israel, had two golden calves made and had one of those set up in Bethel with the other in Dan. These calves were meant to preclude the people from having to travel to the temple in Jerusalem to worship, which was outside of his territory. Besides the very poor choice of idol, or due to the choice of an idol at all, this provoked a reaction out of the competing kingdom of Judah. It didn't help that he also had altars built and scheduled competing festivals. The Judeans were additionally upset that their neighbors would no longer be making the trip, which would result in an economic hit to the area around Jerusalem and along the roads that led to it. Shortly afterward, a Judean prophet traveled to Bethel and told the king that at some point in the future, all of his work would be undone by Josiah. But that was hundreds of years in the future. These calves which of course included the one at Bethel, managed to survive King Jehu's killing of Baal's prophets and the destruction of their temple. But Jehu allowed the calves to remain. Jehu reigned between about 842 and 815 BC. It was around this time that Hosea spoke of a wickedness at Bethel, probably referring to the calves or the continued worshipping of the Canaanite deity Baal or both. More specifically, he describes how the Israelites worshipped Baal and accuses them of making or using images for idol worship. Among these was the image of a bull at Bethel, which in his time was being worshipped as an image of the Canaanite deity Baal. Jeremiah would reiterate Hosea's writings about Bethel. The calves, and possibly the bull, would also survive the invading Assyrians nearly 100 years later. And, just like the prophet foretold, the calves, and likely the temple they were in, were destroyed by King Josiah of Judah, who ruled between 640 and 609 BC. In 2 Kings, and just before he ascended into heaven, Elijah visited Bethel. Shortly later, Elisha was on his way back to the shrine at Bethel, where he was accosted by either boys or young men 
depending on the translation. They taunted him, saying, Go away, bald head! Go away, bald head! When he turned around and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two mama bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. How two bears mauled 42 boys boggles my mind. Like some bad karate movie where they stand around waiting to be attacked, one at a time. After the Babylonian exile, Bethel was resettled and appears to have thrived for centuries, though no written references have been found after Jerome and Eusebius. The uncovered ruins do seem to indicate a church thought to date to the Middle Ages. After that, though, the place appears to have been abandoned. Fast forward to the 20th century, when, in the 1970s, Israel built the village of Beit El on the land adjacent to the supposed site. And that's Bethel in Joshua chapter 8. Chapter 9 begins with the trickery of the Gibeonites. I covered the city of Gibeon in chapter 6, episode 12, released in May of 2020. Later in the chapter in Joshua, we get a mention of wineskins. These were almost what they sound like, the skin of a slaughtered animal, in this case, probably a goat. They were used not only to transport wine, but also milk, olive oil, and even butter and cheese. In three of the Gospels in the New Testament, Jesus tells a parable about putting new wine into old wineskins. I'll save that parable for the future, but he was basing the lesson on the well-known, at least to them, fact that new wine and old skins would cause them to burst. In Joshua, the Gibeonites showed the Israelites that their wineskins were so old that they had burst. The Gibeonites explained to the Israelites that they came from the cities of Gibeon, Shepharah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. In addition to Gibeon, I've covered Beeroth in chapter 5, episode 13, released just over a year ago. As for Shepharah and Kiriath-Jerim, other than their associations with Gibeon, gleaned from the passages, and a smattering of references in the Old Testament, there really isn't much to add. They were both in the same general area as Gibeon, and were occasionally associated with the Hivites. As for Kiriath-Jerim, a contemporary of Jeremiah, the prophet Uriah was from there. Uriah would prophesize against Jerusalem, found in the book of Jeremiah. When he did, this angered King Jehoiakim, who wanted Uriah executed. Uriah escaped to Egypt until he was finally caught by the king's bounty hunters and extradited to Jerusalem. Upon his return, he was executed, then buried in an unmarked grave. And that's it for the four cities of the Gibeonites. But there's one more thing about the Gibeonites, and that's that Joshua made them the hewers of wood and drawers of water. While to a man, or to a woman, they probably weren't all wood choppers and water carriers. Instead, for the time, and seen in a few places in the Old Testament, this term was used to describe those whose occupation was a menial labor. Men would be the wood choppers and women the water transporters. But this may not have meant they were slaves. 
Young, unmarried girls were typically charged with the task of drawing water for their families. This is seen in 1 Samuel 9, when Saul runs into girls coming out to draw water. Outside of the Bible, there's also a Ugaritic text where a character named Kirta marches his army to Udom, where they begin to attack the outlying villages. As part of the battle, his forces attack the men cutting wood and threshing grain, and the women picking straw and drawing water from the springs into jars. Back in Joshua, he did make them the hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord. So, they may have been servants or slaves dedicated to temple work. There's a decent amount of Midrashic writing attempting to explain what these two jobs meant and what the broader lesson was, but it really doesn't add much to the text as presented and takes on more of a tone of pedantic interpretation. And, from a Christian perspective, whether they were slaves, servants, or just put into low-paying jobs due to their ethnicity and heritage isn't worth much more time in this podcast. In other words, moving along and on to Joshua chapter 10. It's here that several kings in Canaan hear the exploits of the Israelites and decide to unite. Specifically, the kings and kingdoms of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. I touched on the history of Jerusalem in chapter 5, episode 7, when I covered the Jebusites, and I'm saving the deeper dive into the history of that city for when I get to David and how he finally came to control it. I did a refresher on the history of Hebron in chapter 5, episode 10, released in November 2019. The original was in chapter 2, episodes 49 and 50, two and a half years earlier which leaves the three smaller cities. First, Jarmuth. Jarmuth, or as seen in some translations, Jeremoth, was the name of two cities in Canaan. The first one is the one mentioned in Joshua. At the time, its king was Piram. The place thought to be Jarmuth is located just south of the modern city of Beit Shemesh, of course in Israel. This places it about 19 miles 30 kilometers west of Jerusalem. There's a tell at the site, and it's now a nearly 70-acre national park. There is another jar myth mentioned in Joshua 21. It was a Levitical city, located within the territory allocated to the tribe of Issachar. The location of this city has been completely lost to the passage of time, though it could be another name for the city of Ramoth, as the latter took its place in the list of Levitical cities in 1 Chronicles 6. Next up should be Lachish, but we know a decent amount of its history, and I don't have enough time left in this episode to do it justice. So, I'll end with Eglin and begin the next episode with Lachish. Though, I do have a slight feeling that I previously covered it. At least this next week will give me the opportunity to make sure I'm not repeating myself again. As for Eglon, it too was a Canaanite city. According to Joshua, it was led by King Jephiah when the Israelites appeared in Canaan. Like the other cities that allied against Israel, its king and his forces would be defeated, a battle that raged on the day the sun stood still. 
Soon after that, the city itself would be taken by the Israelites and incorporated into the territory held by the tribe of Judah. The place known as Eglon is only mentioned in the book of Joshua, though a king Eglon of Moab is recorded in Judges. As for its location, it's thought to be at a site known as Tel Eton, located to the southwest of Jerusalem and almost due west of Hebron. The site has only recently been excavated, and the uncovered artifacts are really too small to contribute to any conclusive findings, at least as of yet. Many of these date to the 10th century BC, which would place them after King David, and therefore well after the defeat of the city by the invading Israelites, which simply translates to that the uncovered remains of the city were well after it became part of Judah. No surprise there. As for what happened after the defeat in Joshua, quite simply, the Israelites likely, and simply, just took over. All of this provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with Lachish and continue pursuing the history of the people, places, and things found in the book of Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.